Would you bow with me once more and let, as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is truth and that as we enter it, as we read from it, that we are hearing the truth. And so we pray, Lord, that this truth would permeate our lives, that less and less of, of the lies of the world would stick to us, Lord, and that more and more your truth would continue to be built up layer upon layer in our lives, that this would be the foundation that we live from. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak through your word, through me, your servant. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we've come in our series in Joshua, The Way In, to part six. And today we've read the prelude to one of the most famous Bible stories uh, that's known around the world as the Battle of Jericho. Now in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, we read this opening line. Now when Joshua was near Jericho. From this simple line, it's clear that as the commander of Israel, Joshua had gone on alone to spy out the city and consider their plan of attack. But as Joshua stood before the city of Jericho, considering how he was going to conquer that mighty fortress with its massive walls, its inhabitants being fierce warriors and even giants, it would have been immediately clear that by human ability, achieving victory would have been next to impossible. Now, in this slide, you see an artist's rendering of what it's believed that Jericho looked like. Archaeologists digging on this site, it's a built-up tell, being a, a, a rise or a hill built upon layer upon layer, as this is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world to this very day. And so the ancient city of Jericho, archaeologists have discovered, would have in fact had a double wall built around it. The first wall was the first line of defense. Archaeologists discovered this wall was six feet thick. Then inside of that was a second wall that was 12 feet thick, wide enough for two chariots to ride side by side on top of it. Now, estimates have placed these walls as high as 25 feet tall. Now, consider as you look at a fortress city like this, Israel had no mighty siege engines with them. They had no battering rams or catapults that could throw rocks or flames into or over the walls of Jericho. All they had was an Ark of the Covenant. They had some trumpets, some spears, and a few bows and arrows. But what good would any of those weapons do against a massive double wall, a fortress? Now, Joshua knew that as the commander of the armies of Israel... The lives of the entire nation, every last man, woman, and child, they were now his responsibility, under his leadership, under his command. He also knew that as he stood before Jericho, considering this massive fortress standing before him, as he looked up at its mighty walls, he will have known that this was a battle he could not win alone. Now, in a spiritual sense, many of us here today have already escaped from slavery in Egypt. The world of sin. We've already committed our lives to Jesus Christ through repentance, and you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You have passed through that Red Sea of baptism. So too you have passed through that season of wandering in the wilderness of sin, crossed the Jordan River, and now are all in for Jesus. You've you've cut off all paths of retreat, 
And now you have nothing more than a deep desire to walk faithfully with the Lord every day of your life, to serve him exactly where he wants you to serve, to say exactly what he wants you to say, to do exactly what he wants you to do. This is your heart's desire. But if that describes you, then you also know that the spiritual battle that you face every day, week in, week out, year in, year out, this spiritual battle continues to rage on. Simply because you've come to this place of being all in for Jesus doesn't mean the war is over. In fact, in many ways, you may have discovered that you're in more battles than you were previously. You're now in the thick of the fighting. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it tells us, For our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so this verse gives us a snapshot to what we are facing. Not a physical enemy, not an army, but a spiritual one. One that is primarily invisible, and yet it has a commander. Satan, the enemy of our souls, commands these dark forces of evil. And so now we know that Satan and these spiritual forces are not going to surrender without a fight. They've established strongholds, fortresses, all around this world strategically to have their influence of evil and darkness over everything, including the governments and cultures and thinking of the world. When we consider issues like abortion, these things didn't just come about by chance. Satan strategically has, has fostered these ideas, set up fortresses to defend them, and these things continue on and on and on. These are strongholds, spiritually, that we face. So too we face them on a personal and individual level where we come up against sins that are just so hard, the temptation to resist them, and they keep defeating us over and over. Perhaps it's got you feeling frustrated, overwhelmed, and even defeated. Maybe at some time you've thought the following. It's not worth the effort. I'm fighting a losing battle. Or it's just a lost cause. Well, in fact, this phrase, it's a lost cause, stemmed from the American Civil War, and it was used to describe the efforts of the Confederacy. Sadly, many people can make those same statements about their spiritual lives. Just as people in the North said, the South is fighting a lost cause. Why don't they just give up already? Well, many of us would say the same. Maybe you would be one that would say that, spiritually speaking, I'm a lost cause, You've all but given up on yourself. Maybe you've almost quit the fight entirely. But let me tell you that before you do that, before you go and submit to the enemy, what you really need to do is to submit to the commander of the Lord's army. Now, in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 14, we read, Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Now the first thing I want you to take note of is Joshua's posture before this commander of the Lord's army. Right out of the gate, we read in verse 13, he looked up and saw. 
Now, while the text doesn't explicitly say this, I suspect that the reason that Joshua had to look up to see the man standing in front of him was not because the man was up in a tree or standing on a hill that he had to look up to see him, but rather that Joshua was already on his knees in a posture of prayer before the Lord. Seeing this mighty fortress, Joshua, a man of faith, a man of God, realizes this battle is greater than himself, and there he is on his knees seeking the Lord for his counsel. He sees this, and he is in a posture of prayer. Now, when facing any battle, great or small, we too need to begin in a posture of prayer. Too often, we come up with our own schemes and plans when we see the fortress in front of us, when we see the battle, we say, this is what I'm going to do, that's what I'm going to do, and we come up with our own battle plan. But then only once things start to go haywire and our plan starts to unravel, then we decide to send up that 911 prayer to God, oh yeah, God, could you help me out here? Things aren't going very well. Has anyone ever done that before? Anyone? Yeah, I've been there a couple of times myself. And this is where such an important thing to to realize and more importantly to practice. Begin in a posture of prayer. Submit your plans to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I think, but what do you think? And seek the Lord first. Begin in that posture of prayer. Next we see that God answers Joshua. He answers Joshua in the form of a man. In the form of a warrior standing unexpectedly and alarmingly before Joshua with an unsheathed sword in his hand. Now, I'm sure this was a startling discovery for Joshua because up until this moment, he thought he was alone. Was this man an enemy from Jericho? Was it a commander of the army of his enemies who had come out to do single battle with him? Was this a man from his own army? Was he sent from some other friendly nation who was coming in to offer aid to them in their fight? Who could this be? Joshua didn't know. Now, in a similar way, quite often, when we pray, and we say, Lord, I I see this obstacle in front of me, I see this situation, I don't know what to do, please help me. And we pray. Often, God sends the answers in unexpected forms in unexpected ways, ones that we don't immediately recognize as being an answer from the Lord. It's like the story of the man whose house was completely flooded, and he ends up on the roof of his house to escape the rising water. Some of you will have heard this story. Now, being a man of devout faith, he looked up to heaven and he cried out, Lord, save me. Soon a man in a rowboat paddled up and called out, jump into the boat, I can save you. But the man replied, no, it's okay. I'm praying to God. He is going to save me. And so the rowboat went on. Well, then a motorboat came by, and the fellow in the motorboat shouted, jump in, I can save you. And same to him, the stranded man replied, no, thanks. I'm praying to God. God will save me. Now the waters really began to rise, and it was coming up the house. He was on the peak, and just then he hears a helicopter flying overhead. The helicopter has a... Has a a loudspeaker, and shouts down to him, Grab the rope ladder! We can save you! And to this, the stranded man again called up, That's all right. God is going to save me. You guys can go. And so the helicopter flies away. 
Soon the water rises above the rooftops. The man is washed away and drowned. He goes to heaven. He finally gets his chance to stand before the Lord and discuss the situation, at which time he asks the question, I had faith in you to save me, but you let me drown. Why? To which God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What else did you expect? Now, this demonstrates that so often we expect God to answer our prayers in a certain manner. And when it comes in a different way, we don't recognize it. We say, oh Lord, that's, that's not your answer. I want something else. I have a certain picture in my mind of how you should answer. Now, even though Joshua was certainly praying, I suspect he didn't expect the answer to come in this form the form of a mighty warrior with an outstretched sword. So here he is, not knowing if this is friend or foe. And to Joshua's credit, he courageously, the text says, stepped forward to investigate and discern who was this man. Verse 13, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, in our pride, we always like to believe that God is on our side. More specifically, God is on my side. Whatever the situation is, God is on my side. You know, as a kid, I used to think when I was playing baseball and I'd go up to bat and I'd pray, Lord, please let me get a hit. Or he'd be in field, and and we'd have a one-run lead in the last inning, and I'd pray, oh, Lord, please let us win this game. And just as often as not, that prayer didn't get answered. I'd strike out, we'd lose the game, and I'd think, Lord, I, I wanted to win. I wanted to do this so badly. Aren't you on my side? And over time, God finally showed me that, no, he's not on my side when it comes to sports, nor is he on the other team's side. These are things that he is not taking a direct Uh, intervention in the vast, vast majority of the time. But in our pride, we still like to think, God is with me. In an ironic fact from history, the German army serving the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler during World War II had engraved on every single soldier's belt buckle, and they still have it to this day, the motto, Gott mit uns, meaning God with us. So think about that. Nazi soldiers believing God is with us, that our crusade of taking over the world is, is a righteous one. Even the Holocaust done under this banner of God mit uns. He's with us. And of course, on the flip side, we Canadians and the soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy like to think, oh, God's with us against you. But what this reveals to us is that God stands over and above all of the affairs of man. And what matters not is whether God is on our side, but rather, are we on God's side? Do you see the difference? It's not about, is God on my side? What do I need to do to get God on my side? How can I convince or persuade him? No. Are we on God's side? You may recall that when immediately following the Israelites worshiping the golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, they're down on the bottom, they're they're given up on Moses, he's been gone too long, they worship this golden calf, 
And Moses, when he comes down finally in his righteous anger, after smashing the Ten Commandments, grinding the golden calf into dust, forcing the people to drink the water, he then stands at the entrance of the camp and he called out to the people, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And you'll recall, only the tribe of Levi rallied to Moses. Now, in our increasingly divided and hostile world, where you've only got to turn on the news for about three seconds and you see it, you don't even have to watch the news anymore and you feel it, our world is dividing into camps of hostility. Us against them, them against us. Which side are you on? Pick a side, choose. Here's the truth. There is only one distinction in this world that matters. Only one. Either we are on the Lord's side or we are not. Jesus said it as well. He who is not with me is against me. That's how clear cut it is. Either we are on the Lord's side or we are not. And we are against him. You see... God does not serve our agenda. God does not serve our plans, our thinking, our ideas. God doesn't serve us that way. We are designed to serve God's agenda, God's plans, God's ways. And you see, Joshua, at this critical moment, needed to fully understand this. That though he was called to be the commander of Israel and its armies, the invasion of Canaan and the battle of Jericho was not... Joshua's idea. Nor would it go according to Joshua's battle plan. And it would certainly not be for Joshua's fame. This was all for God, by God, and him alone. All Joshua needed to do was to submit himself to the command higher than himself. And that's exactly what Joshua does. Verse 14 we read, Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Now I want you to take note that Joshua began in a posture of prayer, and then having recognized finally that the Lord had answered his prayer, had revealed himself to him, he now returns to the ground in a posture of worship and complete submission to the Lord's will. And it's the same for us when we face spiritual battle as well. James 4, 7 to 10 tells us, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will will lift you up. Now don't miss this today. This is the key of this this whole story, I believe. It is only by humbling ourselves before God, humbling ourselves in full repentance of sin, submission to his will, that enables us to then resist the devil and he will flee from us. It is only once we have submitted our way fully to the Lord that victory is now possible. Too many Christians, I think, like to cherry-pick just this one phrase from this passage. They like to cherry-pick the part that says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We repeat it all the time, don't we? 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? As though I'm so tough that the devil comes against me. Yeah, I got this. I'm going to resist him and and I'm going to make him go running. Well, that's a big problem. Because if Danny Greening faces off against the devil alone in my own strength, I don't stand a chance. I'm going to get run over. I'm going to get knocked down every single time. And so here's the truth. Either way, we have to submit to someone. We have to submit to someone more powerful than ourselves. Either we will be forced to submit to the devil, who is more powerful than us, or we can choose to willingly submit ourselves to the Lord and allow him to give us the strength to then resist the enemy in his power and have victory. And so here's the great news. When, like Joshua, we do that and we willingly choose to submit ourselves before God, we enter then into holy ground, ground that is permeated by the very manifest presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's on that ground that Satan and the forces of darkness have no choice but to flee before us. Not because of our strength, not because Danny Greening has some, some power with, within on my own. I don't. But he has to flee because of the power of the one who goes before me. The power of the one who goes before you. And now we find out who that is. Verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. And now I save this question for last. Who is this commander of the Lord's army? Who is it? Is it an angel? Is it someone else? Well, we're given in this text a series of clues. Number one, Joshua bows down to this man in a posture of worship. And the man does not rebuke him for it. Elsewhere in scripture, when an angel appeared to someone who then bowed down to them as if to worship the angel the angel would rebuke him and say, worship God alone. The second clue we're given is that at the end of verse 14, Joshua refers to this man as my Lord, and Lord being all capitalized, uppercase, L-O-R-D. Now you may already know that when that is in your, in your Bible, that is the name of God, Yahweh, his true name. Again, Joshua refers to this man as his Lord and is not corrected for using that name. And thirdly, the final clue and the clincher as to this man's identity is this instruction. Take off your sandals, for where you are standing is holy ground. And this is a direct word-for-word replay of the voice of God coming from the burning bush to Moses many years earlier. And this can lead us all to only one conclusion— And that is, the commander of the Lord's army was not an angel, but none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. And in this incredible moment, it is Jesus himself. Jesus, who remember, in the Hebrew, the name is Yeshua, which is actually the same name as Joshua, Yeshua. And so here we have the earthly man, the warrior, Yeshua, face down, on his knees, sandals off, before Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah. And in this incredible moment, 
We have one man whose name means the Lord is salvation, bowing down before the one who is salvation, none other than the Lord Jesus. And I know we tend to think of the Old Testament as being devoid of Jesus, other than having a few prophecies that speak to him. But Jesus, when you begin to look, is actually an active participant throughout the Old Testament if we have eyes to look for him. Because here he is, the one who would go before Joshua and achieve the victory over the imposing fortress of Jericho. Just as he will go before us and achieve victory over the imposing fortresses of sin, Satan, and death himself. My friends, we follow the commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ. He went before Joshua, and he goes before us. And so when we humbly submit to him, and we listen to his commands, we follow in faith, you can rest assured on this promise. God's word has said, submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can take that to the bank, my friends. The enemy stands no chance, no alternative other than to flee. Just as every demon that Jesus confronted had to flee, the ones who had to go into the herd of pigs had to run away because Jesus was there, the commander. They had no choice. So too, when we confront them in the power of Christ, they have no choice. And the fortresses of the enemy crumble before us. For we have a commander who is able to do this. Because though you may not see it right now, the forces of Satan are on the run. It may look like right now, like it's just getting darker and worse and worse and the world is just falling apart around us. But remember this, the forces of Satan are on the defensive right now. He knows he's working on borrowed time. And he knows that time is running out. And today, my friends, the forces of God are on the march. The kingdom is advancing like a mighty army. And Jesus said this kingdom of the gospel will be preached in every nation around the world and then the end will come. And my friends, we are so close to that happening. We are so close to that gospel of the kingdom being preached in every nation. We've got satellites beaming the word of Christ into parts of the world that had never heard it before. We have missionaries going places the word has never been brought before. And today we are on the cusp of that great and glorious day when the commander of the Lord's army will be revealed. The trumpet will sound and the Lord Jesus will come at the head of a mighty army. And there will be a sword coming out of his mouth to come and bring judgment on all of the wickedness and all of the fortresses of evil that Satan has set up. And they will crumble before him just as certainly as the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. Isn't this incredible, my friends? We're not on the defensive. We're not on the back foot. We are on the winning side, and victory is right around the corner. It is assured to us because we follow the commander who is able to do all of this. And so remember, we are not fighting a losing battle, an offensive war. And now get this, you have a part to play, just like Joshua. You have been positioned and called by God to take ground back from the enemy right where you are. The enemy has taken ground in your family. You have been positioned by God with the spiritual weapons necessary to take back ground in your family. 
to be in prayer daily for your family, for those who are lost in sin, who don't know Christ, for those who have fallen by the wayside. You are there to take back those who have been taken captive. You have been put there for a reason. So too in your workplace, you will know people who don't know the Lord, who are in captivity, in bondage. God has placed you there to push back the darkness, to shine light, to take ground for the kingdom. So what? There's a dark stronghold in your family. God's put you there to demolish it. So what? There's one in your workplace. God has placed you there to confront it. In your school, in your neighborhood, you are there for a reason. And like Joshua, you have been uniquely called and positioned by God to pray first. Remember, pray first, submit to his will, listen to his instructions, and then march forward in faith. Push back the darkness. Take back the ground that Satan has seized. For I hope you see this morning that just like Joshua, you have been called by God. You have been chosen by God. You have been commissioned by God, and finally, you have been empowered by God. And like Joshua, though the enemy still seems as powerful as ever, the battle rages as hot as ever, we have the promises of God that ultimate victory is ensured. God has promised us his presence, abundant life, deliverance, salvation, healing, power, and eternal life. It's all ours. And so, yes, every day we face a new battle. We face new temptations. Yes, there are things that get thrown at us that we weren't expecting. New challenges. And so every day we must make the decision to submit again to the commander of the Lord's army or left with the alternative to try to fight on our own. Bruce Larson tells us his now well-known story of how he used the Atlas Man to help people struggling with whether or not to fully surrender their lives to Christ. And here, you see this statue of the Atlas Man, who's struggling with these mighty muscles to hold the weight of the world on his shoulders. And Bruce Larson says that for many years, in his words, as I worked in New York City and counseled at my office, any number of people who are wrestling with this yes or no decision. And often I would suggest that they walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is this gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who with all of his muscles straining is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under this burden. Now that's one way to live, I would say. Trying to carry the world on your own shoulders. But now come with me across the street. And on the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old and with no effort at all. He is holding the world in the palm of his hand. My point was illustrated graphically. My friends, we have a choice today. We can choose to continue to try to strain and carry the weight of the world on our own shoulders. Or we can say, I give up, Lord. I submit my life to you. I give you my world. I give you my life. I can't win this battle alone. 
And so we humble ourselves before the commander of the Lord's army, knowing that he holds the whole world in one hand as easily as we would hold an apple. It's that real, my friends. Jesus has this power. And so let me encourage you today, submit your all to Christ. Say once and for all, I can't, Lord, but you can. So here are my burdens, here are my battles, here is my will, here is my life. I surrender it all into your hand. Amen. Lord Jesus, commander of the Lord's army, we humble ourselves before you in this moment, as Joshua did. We worship you because of who you are and what you have done. You have demolished the stronghold of sin, Satan, and death when you died on the cross and rose victorious from the grave. And now, Lord, at this exciting point in history, we stand on the cusp of hearing the trumpet sound and you, the commander, revealed in all of your glory in the hosts of heaven at your back, and you will come riding forth in victory and judgment upon all of the darkness and all of the sin and all of the strongholds that the enemy has set up, thinking that somehow he could snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And yet, Lord, we know that that enemy is on borrowed time and it's running out fast. Help us realize today that though this darkness and the the battle around us is more real every day, we are on the winning side. We are the ones taking ground as we march forward, knowing that your kingdom come is inevitable. It is ushered in even today as we step forward in faith and it will be revealed in all of its glory the moment you return. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would go out with confidence today, recognizing that with you, in you, humbled and fully submitted to you, the enemy has to flee before us, and we can take ground in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And to this end we pray, to this end we commit ourselves for your glory, our King, our commander, whose face we will see very soon. For you we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.